Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Dan, Sarah, the doom and gloom duo is back. (laughs) (laughs) That's your term, not mine. Yeah. (laughs) This time, though, with with good news. I feel like we're going to need to, like, change your theme song to something else. (laughs) I know. Well, you did you did Don't Bring Me Down last time, so I want Mr. Blue Sky this time. All right, there we go. Miss, Miss Blue Sky. <laughs> Miss Blue Sky. <laughs> Bring in the good news about the vaccine. <laughs> yes. I'm Jeremy Siegel. This is Politico Dispatch. And today, Dan Diamond and Miss Blue Sky Sarah Overmall, finally with some good news about a coronavirus vaccine. So on Monday, Pfizer, the pharmaceutical company that's been working on a coronavirus vaccine, they released preliminary trial results that look really good, showing 90 percent effectiveness. And that's based off of 94 cases of COVID so far in their trial. And I want to ask you both a bunch of questions about this because I think people have a lot of questions about it. But but first, I mean, 90 percent effective, Sarah. I feel like I have to ask, like, is this real? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, how much faith should we put in that number? How good should we really feel about this? No, that's a really good question. And again, this is the first data check-in. So what happened here was that they said that they were going to take their first look at how patients were doing with the vaccine when a certain amount of people got sick. When Pfizer designed this trial originally, they were going to do that first check-in when only 32 people were sick. Um, And that's what I mean when I say they raised that bar, which means that they, if they had checked in at 32 people, they could have had news before the election. But that would have been news based on 32 people. And so this 94 number means that we have a bigger group of people to look at. It's making people feel more confident in these results that they put out. But yeah, this is just a suggestion of what's going to happen in the thousands more who are still in this trial, who are still being tracked for the effectiveness. And also, this is only in 94 people just a few weeks after getting the vaccines, getting the the two doses, I should say. Um, So we don't actually know how long that protection lasts. There are still lots of questions. And and Sarah, you've made this point about the 94 confirmed cases of COVID-19. But just to underline the point, there weren't only 94 people in this Pfizer analysis, right? Like they went out and got, I thought, over 40,000 people for their study. Exactly. So um, only 94 people in the trial got sick so far. And when Pfizer originally designed the trial, they said that we're going to check in on the data when a certain amount of people get sick. That might seem like a weird milestone to people outside of um, clinical research. But what they were trying to do there is make sure that there were enough sick people so that they could see whether the vaccine was actually working in the vaccine arm. Because if you think about it, if nobody in the placebo arm gets sick, you have no way of knowing if anybody in the vaccine arm is actually protected. Um, and so that's why they checked in at that time. And that that milestone marker of waiting for 94 people to get sick versus a lower threshold, that's like That's been like the big political battle the past few days, right? Like, didn't the Trump administration expect initially that the milestone, the threshold was going to be lower for Pfizer to move forward? 
It did. We all did. Um, so when Pfizer originally designed this trial, they said that they would take that first data check when 32 people were sick. That's a really low number. I mean, a few health experts kind of raised their eyebrows at that anyway, but it was understandable in the heat of this pandemic that we want answers quickly. And so had they checked in at 32 people like they originally planned, we very likely would have had some data before election day. But they decided at some point last month, and they didn't tell anyone publicly about this. They had conversations with FDA last month. Um, they said that these conversations were about the fact that they were expanding their trials, they were adding new people, but they decided to move that bar up to 62 sick people. And then by the time they checked in at 62, there were actually 94 sick people. So what that did was move their timeline back, essentially past November 3rd. And that's where people are angry. They think that Pfizer intentionally did that. The problem there is that there's it's it's twofold. This higher number having 94 sick people, it makes people more confident. I mean, that's much better to look at that than 32. 32 is again just a really small number. It's it's a lot to count on with that. But again, they did they did move that back and they didn't tell people publicly that that's what they were doing. So that news on Monday was a surprise in multiple ways. Yes, this vaccine is very effective. And whoa, you guys kind of waited for a minute. Dan, I, I know this is like a really tough question to answer, but do you think if this had been released before the election, it could have had a significant impact on the results? I have some sympathy for the Trump administration and that they were damned if they did, damned if they didn't. If they rushed before the election, that would raise all kinds of concerns about the quality of the vaccine, about whether it was politically motivated. If they didn't rush, they're the government in the middle of a pandemic that didn't do everything they could. So I, I think it was a bit of a tricky box. And the best thing that the administration and the scientific community could do would be to leave all the politics out of it to begin with. If President Trump hadn't made the promises he did, if he hadn't made the coronavirus all about himself, Back in the spring, doing press conferences, embracing questions that probably should have gone to Dr. Fauci or Dr. Burks on stage, then maybe we're in a different situation altogether, Jeremy. And a vaccine that comes out before the election doesn't feel like it has the fingerprints of the Trump administration, rightly or wrongly. So back to the science and not the politics. I know one of the big concerns with a vaccine is the possibility of side effects. Sarah, in these trials, have we seen any? We have not seen any serious side effects so far. And that's one of the most promising things that's come out of this, because again, it's still early days and um, Pfizer's not allowed to file anything with FDA until it's tracked at least half of its patients for two months. And that's when we're really going to see sort of somewhat longer term answers about this. But it's really heartening that they said that there's no serious side effects in placebo or in the vaccine arm. And so the Monday news is, is much better than really anyone could have expected, not just because of the safety thing, but it's been a grave concern for months, really for this entire pandemic, that the first vaccine would be just good enough, like just acceptable, and that people wouldn't want to take it or that they'd wait around for another one, that this one could be more than 90% effective, kind of soothes a few of those fears. This is just really promising, especially considering that there's still more vaccines coming from other manufacturers as well. What are the next steps here before it's like officially this is the 
coronavirus vaccine? Like when when will we know that the U.S. is going to start producing and distributing this for sure? And, and what needs to happen before then? So a few things. It's already being manufactured on a very wide scale. Uh, the U.S. government and the pharmaceutical companies themselves have been pouring millions into boosting manufacturing with the expectation that if something does work, they don't want lag time. They want to be able to get that out as fast as possible. So actually, Pfizer is predicting that they're going to be able to give the United States government 100 million doses by March. Um, And then they are going to distribute more worldwide, but they haven't quite decided yet how that's going to be allotted. So there's that aspect of it. But in terms of approval, in terms of widespread use, the next thing that we're all looking at is Pfizer filing for emergency use authorization with FDA. And that's the one where they have to have at least half of their patients followed for two months. And they have to file with them and say, this is the safety profile in 15,000 people. And here's how many of those people got sick. So for people saying, you know, am I going to get a vaccine based on what happened in 94 people? No, this news on Monday just said that what happened in those 94 people is likely to happen in the larger group. But Pfizer's not going to file until they have data for thousands of people. And then that emergency use authorization gets the ball rolling for giving it to really high need people, people like healthcare workers, people like um, the elderly. But then they will eventually file for full approval. If this all works out, if it gets the emergency use authorization, what's the timeline like after that? Like, Sarah, who would get it first? Who would get it second? Who would get it third? And and how does all of that happen? The timeline for, for broad access for your average American to get it doesn't actually really change right now. You should expect if you are not someone working in a high exposure job or someone with um, a medical vulnerability to it, you should still expect that next summer is probably when you're going to get a shot. Um, And by that point, there's probably going to be several more besides the Pfizer one. But what's going to happen first is that there have already been talks from the National Academies of Science, from CDC, uh, from states about how to prioritize certain people to get the vaccine based on their population, based on expectations for what the virus is going to do over the next months and year and who who needs it in order to control spread and who needs it in order to curb mortality. So that's going to be the first priority group is going to be healthcare workers. It's going to be elderly people with medical vulnerabilities. And it's going to be certain other people who have um, certain illnesses. But that, again, is going to depend on how many people vaccine makers actually use in their clinical trials to get that data. So Pfizer being the first one, they have been studying it in older people. They've also just started studying it in people who are as young as 12. But if you don't have that data, it's really hard to say, okay, now we're going to give this to children. Um, So it's going to depend a lot on what vaccine makers do to gather that research. But yeah, it's going to start going down the line. Second priority group is going to be people like teachers, first responders, um, people who work in the food chain, grocery stores, meat packers, things like that. You and I are probably going to be the fourth priority group, and we're not going to be getting something until summertime. When it comes down to it, how stoked should we be about this? Like, Dan, looking at, say, July of next year, when it sounds like, you know, you, Sarah, and I could be getting this vaccine if it all works out, am I looking at a normal life where, like, I'm going to the grocery, I'm not wearing a mask, I'm I'm living life like I was two years ago? <laughs> you called us the 
what gloom and doom duo. I I think <laughs> there are a lot of practical challenges that will make this a longer slog than people realize. ProPublica, I thought, had a great story this week about all the ways we're not prepared to roll out the Pfizer vaccine. This is a vaccine that needs to be stored at ultra cold temperatures, I believe about negative 100 degrees Fahrenheit. It might be sent in big box doses. There aren't a lot of freezers in some of these states to house the vaccine, and especially in a rural state that might be seeing a massive outbreak, North Dakota, South Dakota, just getting the Pfizer vaccine stored, distributed, that's a completely different challenge that it doesn't seem like we're ready to do yet. Will we be ready by next year? Quite possibly. But if there's one lesson from 2020, it's to prepare for the worst and then be pleasantly surprised, not the other way around. Dan Diamond, Sarah Overmall, thanks so much for talking with me. Glad to come in with some happier news today, Jeremy. Thanks for having us, as always. And if you want to hear an extended version of this conversation, subscribe to Politico's Pulse Check podcast. This week's episode includes more questions answered about the COVID vaccine, some wedding planning advice from Dan Diamond, and a guest appearance from Sarah Overmall's cat, Pip. And no, I am not kidding about any of that. It actually happens. You got to subscribe and check it out. Also today, Texas now has more than a million coronavirus cases. The state became the first in the nation to hit that milestone on Wednesday, and California is following closely behind. The new numbers from Johns Hopkins University come as coronavirus infections are surging across the country, including in New York, where Governor Andrew Cuomo is ordering restaurants, bars, and gyms to close at 10 p.m. statewide. The U.S. currently has about 10.3 million confirmed cases, with new infections reaching record high levels this week. And the CDC is now urging people to wear masks not only to protect other people from the coronavirus, but to protect themselves. When the agency first recommended face coverings earlier this year, it said the move was intended to block infectious particles that might be emitted by the person wearing a mask. In an updated report released on Tuesday, the CDC said that's still the main reason to wear one, but the agency also cited evidence that masks can reduce the amount of infectious droplets inhaled, meaning wearing a mask protects the wearer, not just other people. To stay up on all of our latest coverage of the coronavirus pandemic, sign up for the Politico Pulse newsletter. You can find that at politico.com slash newsletters and in this episode's show notes. I'm Jeremy Siegel. Thanks for listening.